0: to Way Too Twogs Bagpipe and History Podcast. Uh, This episode, uh, as already has begun, we're going to talk about Amazing Grace kind of as part of a bigger discussion of uh, white supremacy in the United States and bagpipes and Scottish stuff. And uh, so that was my first recording there is me playing Amazing Grace a couple times through, I think on my Gibson Channer, kind of more modern setup of pipes. Um, this episode we're going to talk about um, the Ku Klux Klan and kind of my experiences with the KKK growing up in, in Kansas for a couple of years and uh, the Midwest in general. And then uh, we're going to listen to, or we're going to talk about the history of Amazing Grace and the kind of abolitionist that wrote the, the poem or wrote the hymn, John Newton, and his bit of history in the Atlantic slave trade. And then we're going to hear Amazing Grace performed on Ellen Pipes by Chris McMullen. So thank you, Chris, uh, for letting me play your tunes on the podcast. And then we're going to listen to um, kind of my revisiting uh, the first P-rock I ever played, um, Didn't know it was a p-brick, fell in love with it, called Andrach Beg, or The Little Spree. No idea how to actually pronounce that in Gaelic. And then we're going to finish off with an actual Angus Mackay tune. So after decades of playing Donald MacDonald tunes and saying they're Angus Mackay, I have officially learned and recorded an Angus Mackay tune. So we'll listen to Mackay's rant to end the episode. I wanted to talk about this... Because, you know, I've been wrong in the past, and uh, I think it's important to kind of talk about that. Specifically, I've, been, I've made like factual errors in talking about John Newton. Uh, if anyone listening attended my last bagpipe program at Grand Portage National Monument as a park ranger, I kind of misrepresented John Newton's uh, authorship of the hymn Amazing Grace. And... Kind of when that happened and his relationship to the slave trade and so i wanted to correct that uh, and also just to sort of keep the conversation about white supremacy and uh yeah uh, keep that conversation going i think like listening to uh, listening to listen to the daily zeitgeist podcast and something that miles gray has said on there a lot the last couple of weeks is that you know this is gonna be a marathon uh, even though there have been kind of remarkable changes in the last couple weeks, from uh, as a result of these protests, which are just great, it's just fantastic that we're making progress. But uh, it's gonna, this is gonna continue. <laughs> it's gonna continue on, and we're gonna need to keep be dedicated, stay dedicated to to change. And I think a big part of that, I've noticed something in myself, is like. I used to engage in discussions with people and try to, like, subtly point out, like, the fallacies or inconsistencies with a viewpoint without calling something racist because, you know, that that can, for white people, that's sort of the worst thing you can call them. And if you call them a racist, then they immediately try to do the, you know, mind jujitsu of claiming that that isn't racist and that you don't understand what they're saying, and they don't see color, or whatever. Um, but I think that's not right anymore. I think, uh, for myself, I'm trying to be better at pointing out problematic things explicitly when they happen around me. Um, like, as a white man, that's sort of my role in all this, is to quit being worried about the feelings of people that are racist, even if they perhaps don't realize what they're saying is racist. Um... I think if everything that you do and um, put your energy towards props up white supremacy, but you are ignorant of the fact that it is propping up white supremacy because of, like, your white privilege, that doesn't make it not racist. And I I think rather than being offended and going on the defensive when we are told something is racist, it is good to listen to that and interrogate ourselves and figure out what we're saying, uh, why the person pointing out it's racist is is saying that. Um, The best thing that anyone can ever do is admit they are wrong um, when receiving new data and new information and adjust accordingly. Um, It seems like one of the bigger problems in the world or in our society here in America is the the large population of people that refuse to ever be wrong and refuse to ever take in new data and respond accordingly. Like I have said and done shameful, embarrassing things. Um, and we've got to kind of move beyond that, uh, except that, Oh, those were mistakes and I need to be better. I kind of cringe with memories of like, I literally argued with my high school social studies teacher that the civil war wasn't about slavery. Um, Because of the particular cocktail of kind of ultra-conservative, wannabe um, apocalypse fighters um, that I grew up in. Um, Anyway, that's wrong, you know. Uh, Just to state clearly here, if anybody's saying, well, the Civil War was about states' rights, not about slavery, it wasn't. If you read every single secession document from the Confederate states, slavery and the institution of slavery and complaints about the North not returning captured slaves or hunting down runaway slaves is, is stated as the reason for secession. So it's about slavery. Uh, you can argue some kind of finer point about how it was protecting a way of life. That way of life is based on slavery. Um, like all that stuff is like, it's, it's about slavery, y'all. Uh, anyway, so what I want to talk about today with Amazing Grace is... So something that has thrown me I spent a couple of years in Kansas and at when I was seven years old, I lived in the suburbs of Wichita. If you can call Valley Center a suburb. I don't know. I lived outside of Wichita. And when I was six or seven, we had a flyer like left on our doorstep for the Ku Klux Klan. So our, you know, suburb was predominantly white, and they were they were literally just recruiting people by leaving flyers on doorsteps. So I think, you know, the idea that the kkk and systemic racism thing is is something of the past is not accurate um and it's not something relegated to the deep south like things have changed the last couple years but growing up in wisconsin i encountered far more confederate flags and like explicit racism than i did when I started kind of seeing someone and traveling to North Carolina on a pretty regular basis. And I was kind of shocked in traveling to the South, how in the Midwest, all the graffiti and bathrooms and public bathrooms, like most of it is predominantly racist, um, or homophobic or transphobic. Like that's what the graffiti in bathrooms was. And it was really an eye opener. Uh, <laughs> and like the early 2000s, 2000 teens, I guess, uh, going and seeing the graffiti in the South was all Christian, which was really bizarre. Like I've, yeah, just the religious bowel movements was sort of surprising to me. Like, I guess, yeah, sometimes that must feel like an epiphany. um, (laughs) When you're having a really, really refreshing time in a, in a restroom Uh, anyway. So I I think this idea that racism is a Southern problem is wildly wrong. Uh, We know there is plenty of racism in the Midwest if, in some ways worse than what's going down uh what has kind of continued to happen in the south or happened in the south um there's lots of evidence of sundown towns where you know they were literal sirens in illinois and wisconsin and towns um indicating when it was sundown and that meant that african americans were no longer allowed in that town there's a pretty great book about it by james lowe the guy who wrote um lies they taught you or lies they taught you in history class can't remember quite what the title of that book is anyway um speaking of bowel movements and religious epiphanies that feels like the best transition i'm going to get in this discussion for talking about amazing grace um when i was a kid i can't remember if it was in kansas or in wisconsin i remember seeing on the local news coverage uh a clan rally and a bagpiper playing amazing grace and if it was in Kansas, I wasn't playing bagpipes yet. Um, but I remember being upset by it, so I, I think it must have been, I must have been in Wisconsin by the time I saw this. But uh, I was really like irritated that this thing that I loved so much was being used by people that I hated and were espousing hate, um, and it just felt like this taint of the instrument, and. It really bummed me out, and as I learned more about Amazing Grace, like the song, it seemed really absurd and just like one more example of the confusion of white supremacists. So, uh, if you if you somehow don't know, Amazing Grace is a hymn written by an abolitionist named John Newton. Uh, what I said wrong about John Newton during my bagpipe program. Uh, he had this relig- a religious epiphany in seventeen forty eight. Uh, off the coast of Ireland where he kind of woke up on a ship and they were about to crash and die and he prayed for help and got it. And uh, he claims to have had a religious awakening then. It was really important to him. Uh, what I said in my program was that, I think I said right then and there, he decided to quit working the slave trade and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace uh, to kind of cement that. None of that is accurate. Uh, he supposedly had this religious epiphany off the coast of Donegal in 1748, but he especially after 1748 that he began working in earnest in the slave trade and uh, wound up working as a a slave ship captain for at least three trips, which is a really long career in the slave trade. Um, Captains and crew burned out and died uh, often from kind of the horrors of engaging in that that trade. So um, John Newton claims to have this religious epiphany, but... Uh, it is after that religious epiphany that he engages in the slave trade in earnest. It takes several years for him to kind of come around. He gets, he has a stroke on his, I think, third, on the eve of his fourth trip and winds up not doing it. And that kind of spared him of engaging the slave trade. But according to Wikipedia anyway, uh, he stayed invested in the slave trade for years. Uh, but he wound up becoming like a, a firm abolitionist and uh, a strong voice against slavery, against the slave trade against the slave trade i think he was against slavery too but those are two very different things and honestly to, to a certain extent it feels weird to talk about slavery and the transatlantic slave trade because even at the time many people were pro-slavery and anti the you know the middle passage anti the uh, atlantic slave trade and people could get behind banning uh, the Atlantic slave trade because of the obvious, like, horrors and injustices of it, but still were fine with, um, domestic slavery as evidenced by it, you know, the, the Atlantic slave trade being banned in the United States long before, uh, the American Civil War. Um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, John Newton has this religious epiphany and goes on to work for several years in the slave trade, and, uh, he wound up writing a pretty powerful, uh, piece about it, um, and it, it follows a lot of the customs of um, abolitionist narratives at the time. But he has more experience in the slave trade than most people writing this. So he wrote it kind of 30 years after his time in the slave trade. It's called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. I'll see if I can't post a link to it um, in the show notes if I can find an archive.org kind of version of it. Um, but some a couple things kind of rereading through it today that struck me, uh, like that we can take as examples is like he was wrong, you know? <laughs> like, um, yeah, so what does he say here? Um, Disagreeable, I had long found it, but I think I should have quitted it sooner. Had I considered it, as I do now, to be unlawful and wrong, but I never had a scruple. So he's talking about, like, why he stayed in the slave trade so long. He says, I never had a scruple upon his head. Upon this head, at the time, nor was such a thought once suggested to me by any friend. Uh, What I did, I did ignorantly, considering it as the line of life which divine providence had allotted me, and having no concern and point of conscience, but to treat the slaves while under my care with as much humanity as a regard to my own safety would admit. Like, so Newton continued, you know, arguably became more powerful in the slave trade after his religious awakening and it just he was ignorant of how bad it was and you know he obviously came around eventually and like that's the spirit I think a lot of us have to move forward that have like propped up white supremacist systems and kind of blindly supported it and ignored even if we were angry by it ignored comments by people that are in higher power positions than we were or friends and loved ones like those are hard conversations to have but um. like be better I guess like be better about having them um, I think we have a real moment in this country to to see change and progress that just hasn't really existed yet and but that means we have to commit to it and accept when we're wrong and move on John Newton literally went from making his living in the slave trade to saying it's bad and, and working against it like we can all do the little effort of like oh maybe Maybe there shouldn't be such a disproportionate use of violence and policing and disenfranchisement of minorities in the United States. Anyway, that's sort of what I was thinking about it. Um, It's worth noting, like from a historic music perspective, when John Newton wrote the hymn, I think that's 20, like in the 1770s and when he actually writes the hymn, so many years after his um, religious awakening, uh, it almost certainly didn't accompany the melody that it's used with now but some other melody couldn't really track it down um the tune itself is an older tune called old britain or king britain i can't remember which um it certainly predates predates the hymn uh some interesting things i was searching and kind of curious about the Um, the KKK and bagpipes and I did a search on Bob Dunsire forums and I have to say like there is a a thread about the KKK and bagpipes from 2006 and I had really low expectations because I had been one of those people that didn't speak up against racism in a pipe band like I just ignored it because I was embarrassed or felt like I didn't want to be you know I just I wanted to fit in and I didn't want to call out people older than me and that were my friends for saying racist things. I assumed that that's sort of what all pipe bands were like, was sort of this toxic, racist, misogynistic kind of space. And uh, anyway, I was really surprised reading this Bob Dunsire forum from 2006. Like, they had a reasoned, like, a pretty good conversation. Like, there's a handful of people that tried to argue that, you know, we shouldn't be talking about racism back in 2006. But the majority of people were having, like, an earnest discussion about um, the problems of racism and kind of similarities between Scottish culture and, um, you know, racial injustice in the United States. And kind of the bizarre way that people wound up um, using Highland bagpipes in Scottish culture to oppress somebody else, even though like Scots were oppressed and uh, that that sort of thing. Uh, which feels like a whole bigger topic about historical trauma and um, and that sort of thing, but that's for a different discussion i suppose um i will say i kind of wanted to talk more about this and i realizing that there's a whole documentary in scotland about it that neil oliver did a couple years ago i think in 2016 but it's on bbc one or two or something and i just i can't can't watch that stuff in the united states even when i have a vpn running uh, bbc iplayer outsmarts it so don't know but if you're in the uk you might be able to watch neil oliver's discussion of the kkk and scottish symbolism um like there's things like the burning cross is uh, a scottish thing right from the highlands that has been romanticized and kind of confused but it was used in by the kkk as an intimidation tactic for sure uh, kind of my favorite <laughs> favorite story about a kkk cross burning comes from north carolina so in uh, in, uh, I should look up when this actually happened so I get it right. But there's what they call the Battle of Hayes Pond. Um, yeah, 1958. So uh, in North Carolina, there's... So the the Lumbee, the Lumbee tribe. So the Klan was protest. you know, was threatening them, harassing them, complaining about uh, interracial relationships and had been burning crosses in Lumbee country. And the Klan put out an ad that they were going to... You know, a rally that they're going to burn another cross, and uh, near or, or in a Lumbee community to threaten a woman and uh, these people in an interracial relationship, and the Lumbee showed up on mass and like drove the Klan off. So they figure it's between like fifty to one hundred Klansmen and five hundred Lumbee showed up to fight off the Klan, and the Klan just ran away. Uh, there's kind of hilarious anecdotes, anecdotes from the. Uh, encounter where the the grand dragon or wizard or whatever hell the leader of the KKK was uh, hopped in his car and drove off and so so one guy like abandoned his wife at the rally. And so the Lumbee had to like escort her home. Uh, and then another car got stuck and a bunch of Lumbee dudes had to help the car get out of the ditch so they could drive off. So maybe battle is the the wrong term, but, um, if you look it up, you'll see pictures of a couple of Lumbee guys kind of draped in Confederate flags that they had stolen from the clan at the rally. Um, yeah, it was a cross burning trying to intimidate people. Um, I just wish, I wish that I didn't have to worry about this. remember my first time around doing the podcast, there was a, uh, band, uh, that I was, I was trying to listen to more like German bagpipes or old medieval bagpipes. And there's a group on MySpace that I really liked their music. And then they updated their profile picture and it had a bunch of these like, Oh, those are white nationalist kind of symbols. Um, which is f- just frustrating, very frustrating, disgusting, disturbing. And, um, Anyway, that's our, uh, that's my call to action here to call out racism when you see it around you. Um, but also realize that, you know, by me not calling it out, maybe my pipe end could have been better. Like the folks at the Bob Dunsire discussion that were clearly enraged at the the link between the KKK and bagpipes and, um, upset at, at racism in general. I just joined Reddit, uh, (laughs) Seems like a bad thing. Be like, oh, Facebook's getting too toxic. Gonna go join Reddit. Um, but it's gonna, I was joining Reddit and I was really heartened to see. There's a, a couple discussions about uh, kind of queer bagpipers. And their experiences were, like, many people posted positive experiences. Which, again, I didn't expect because I my experience was so much more the sort of, the, like, Midwestern toxic masculinity chauvinism stuff. Um, so, yeah. I feel like part of the problem because I didn't call that shit out and we, you know, people can change. Yeah. Being a bagpiper does not make you inherently conservative. It turns out. And I feel like an idiot for thinking that. Okay. So that is that let's, uh, let's move on to some more tunes. This is already getting to be too long. So um, we're going to have since John Newton has his religious awakening in Ireland, uh, it seemed fitting to have Amazing Grace on Ellen Pipes. So we'll finish off our discussion of Newton and Amazing Grace with Chris McMullen uh, playing Amazing Grace. Chris has been like so I'll, I'll put some links to his YouTube page and you can pick up his album. He's been posting these pretty incredible like cover Ellen Pipe tracks lately of like rock tunes and things and I think he did some Guns N' Roses the other day. Uh, just recently, after posting Amazing Grace, the next video he did was Gabriel's oboe from The Mission on Ellen Pipes, which is just great. Uh, a, a while back, he had a recording of, of Danny Boy, which is a tune sort of like Amazing Grace that I just hate as a bagpiper, but I realized I had maybe never actually listened to it on Ellen Pipes. and um, I, I have to say, like his rendition of Amazing Grace is really pretty, but it's still not enough to make me like playing the tune just because I've played it so damn much and people have asked for it so much um but yeah so here is uh, chris McMullen playing amazing grace thank you chris uh regulators really add to the sort of organ nature of this hymn so enjoy thank you again chris um yeah check out his youtube page if you haven't already um like chris was the first person i heard do clumsy lover on ellen pipes and i just loved that loved his setting of it and i was sort of surprised at like it's pretty doable <laughs> like i posted it as a tune of the day a while back and it's not all that difficult um but his version of it is is just stellar and uh the things he does are difficult, (laughs) but just playing, just transposing the tune, you just kind of play it like you would on Highland Pipes. Um, Anyway, so that's uh, Chris McMullen, check his stuff out. Um, One thing that I was sort of surprised by in reading through uh, some other threads on, so part of the reason we're talking about, you know, the KKK, when they would do a cross burning, they would play Amazing Grace with it, uh, at least, you know, relatively recently. And in the discussion of the, thread on mob dunsire somebody pointed out that like playing amazing grace on bagpipes wasn't a thing uh until 1972 uh which was the the first recording of it anyway by the i guess the royal scots dragoons i should say the right thing ah but i did not write it down let's see here yeah no i was right Royal Scots Dragoon's. Um, yeah, so the Royal Scots Dragoon's recorded it in 1972 and it was apparently like on the top of the charts for quite a while. Um and then after that, after that it was kind of non-stop. And it was shocking to me realizing that, you know, things change, time is not t- time moves forward and the world changes and that means that, you know, bagpipers lived in a world where they weren't constantly being asked to play Amazing Grace and so I sent an email to a buddy of mine that has been piping since the oh fifties. Is that what he said? Uh, piping for a long while, anyway, and uh, and he said, yeah, he remembered not having to be requested, you know, like not being requested to play Amazing Grace all the time. And uh, I asked him, this like, well, what is the tune that people requested all the time before then, and. Um, it was was still Scotland the Brave. (laughs) So Scotland the Brave was still number one. I'm kind of interested in Scotland the Brave, though, looking at Angus Mackay and Donald MacDonald's settings. Like, that's getting into the 19th century, and I still haven't seen a setting for um, Scotland the Brave in there. So that's got to be a pretty recent historical tune, too. I had another reenactor, kind of history buff, Bagpiper friend, insist that she had found some ancient, like, harp, tabulations or something for it and going back into the 14 or 1500s or some nonsense but that seems unlikely but um i'm willing to be wrong about that uh we were just having a conversation and she didn't like show me her her notes or anything uh, but i was just willfully hoping to have an excuse not to play Scotland the brave anymore at reenactments or historic settings um so any reenacting bagpipers you can use this podcast as evidence to not play amazing grace on bagpipes because it didn't wasn't a thing until the seventies. Um, my bagpiping buddy said he remembered that the Amazing Grace at funerals started with JFK's funeral, um, but I was I was kind of scrolling through the JFK funeral for um, kind of after his email, and it's they're playing Mist Covered Mountains I think is the the tune and the clip I could see, but it's a long funeral, so I wouldn't be shocked if somebody didn't play Amazing Grace um, around that time, but still, that's in the, the 60s, so, um, so yeah. So, I have long disliked playing Amazing Grace uh, for many reasons. The one of, like, burnout of playing it too much, you know, when I was starting, it was a tune that I've already requested. If you're busking as a kid, it was the best way to get money, and I was... The little one settled with its association with that KKK bagpiper, Piper. Um, and also I didn't like that it made everybody cry. So I had lots of reasons not to want to play Amazing Grace. But I was also sort of a jerk as a teenager. So I started really enjoying playing The Little Spree. Because if you mess with the timing a little bit, it sounds like you're about to play Amazing Grace. And for some reason, as a teenager, that seemed to me like the, the funniest thing you could do is get a whole bunch of people listening to you thinking they are about to hear Amazing Grace and then play a P-Brock instead. Uh, it's the first P-rock I ever played. I didn't realize it was a P-Brock. I heard it off of that Celtic rock band, Brother. If anybody remembers them from a bit back. Um, I guess they're still around? I think they broke up, got back together. I'm not sure. Anyway, but Brothers, uh, kind of their first and second albums that were kind of mass-released over here in the States anyway, had... Um, the little spree on it uh, by the Gaelic name. And I just thought it was cool. They don't play the full version of it. They play the, the ground and the Tarlua variation and do some cool harmonies and things with it. And I just love that tune. I distinctly remember making my seventh grade class, listen to it when we had some What's Your Favorite Song project we had to do. And when I was still in a pipe band uh, as a kid, not, not the one where I don't remember anything particularly, problematic being said in the pipe band I grew up in. Um, but when I was a kid I remember another piper coming up to me when I was playing it saying, Is that a Pebrock? And I was like, no, I don't play Pebruck, that stuff's boring. Um, and playing like, unbeknownst to me, I was totally playing a Pebruck, and it was my favorite song at the time. Um, so here's me kind of piddling through the little spree. Um, using the old chanter. And you can hear I am I'm kind of struggling with this old chanter. The, the reed that's in it sounds nice, but uh, it underblows, so it, it sounds good when it's not at full pressure, which is okay if, you know, you don't have a high A in the tune. I mean, it's not okay, because the drone's kind of suffer. So uh, here's my version of Little Spree. Not totally happy with the tuning on my chanter, but uh, you can idea the tune and hopefully tell how it can be mistaken for Amazing Grace. Enjoy.
1: Thank <music>
0: To, uh, Angus McHitune. So this is, um, I made some mistakes, uh, in my episode talking about the mistakes I made about Donald McDonald. I also, uh, posted some more mistakes. So, uh, got some good resources. Again, posted, when I posted the episode on Bob Donsire forums, um, Keith Sanger commented who literally wrote the biography on Donald McDonald and, uh, told me like what it was, where it was. In my head, I had it that... uh, So the Peabrook Society published Donald MacDonald's setting and included a biography of Donald MacDonald in the two volumes. In my head, I thought it was like a small little thing, because what I had read on Donald MacDonald seemed to not... seemed to indicate there wasn't a lot of information, I thought. And uh, Mr. Sanger was like, No, 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 it's huge. From what I've heard, it's exhaustive and tedious. Um, Anyway, so I'm really excited to read it. He offered some comments on uh, some of my questions. So one of the things I had said about the two McDonald collections is that they were published, you know, decades apart, and that's not true. It's just the the two versions that have survived into the archive that I use are different publications. So the collection of dance music is maybe, like, it's less than a decade later uh, when it came out. And so this Angus Mackay collection that I'm about to play from I don't actually know when it was first published. The version on the uh, kind of Glen Music Archive or Glen Collection of Printed Music Archive at the S- National Scottish Library, uh, it's, you know, it says around 1854, but I think that that might just be this edition or it might be when it was first published. So um, Mr. Sanger gave me some tips and places to look and uh, for like the original publication dates for these things. Uh, apparently, there is a article that is kind of housed on Alt Pbrock, which is back up. Um, so, if anybody used the Alt Pbrock site, uh, supposedly it is up and running again, uh, which is good. It's a good resource. Uh, didn't realize, it's just too bad that uh, Mr. Hester kind of passed away unexpectedly and. And with coronavirus and everything, the like who was going to take over the website got a little confused and, and lost, but supposedly it is back up and running. Um, but yeah, there is some resources on there that Mr. Sanger directed me to, so I'll check those out. Uh, and anyway, so we'll talk more about Donald MacDonald uh, as I get that, um, once I get that biography, I ordered it from the Peabrock Society, the first volume anyway. It sounds like the second volume has a bit more of the information I'm interested in, and that second volume, you can only buy through the Piping Center's store. And the Piping Center store is closed right now, I believe. Um, I never actually followed through to try to purchase it, because I am trying to source more reads. So if anybody has experience buying um, bagpipe reads from the Piping Center, let me know. Uh, Mostly in the States here, I buy from that Henderson group. Um, as a kind of solo bagpiper. I remember hearing horror stories about sourcing reads um, that, you know, if you buy a read and don't have a good name, you get crap reads. Um, and I'm not sure if you're not in a... You know, so being in a band, you could always get a... You're ordering so many reads, you can throw off the crap ones. But uh, anyway, I don't know. You know, Henderson guarantees their reads, which is really nice. They used to charge extra for that. Uh, now I, I don't think they do. So as a person that's generally buying two or three reads at a time rather than 20 or 50... Um yeah, I was worried about it. so I'm worried about ordering a single Reed from the National Piping Center. The fellow that I got, the Hardy Channer from recommended Troy Reeds. and I kind of wanted to get a little bit harder strength Troy Reed to see if that fixes my tone problems. And I can't get them in the states. The Henderson group doesn't sell them, but the piping Center does. Uh, But that kept me from, like, trying to go through with the purchase to get the book because I wanted to make sure the read works. So if you have experience ordering reads from the Piping Center and, like, if I can just order a read and trust that it'll be good, please let me know uh, so I can just move forward with that. Uh, Really need to learn how to start making my own reads. Uh, It has become painfully obvious uh, with each passing day of further interest in any kind of bag piping. Anyway, so... Um once I get that second volume and look through things, uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about Donald MacDonald. Uh today we are listening to the first tune in Angus Mackay's um collection. So the title of the book is one of these gloriously long 19th-century things: a collection of marches, quick steps, stress bays, reels and Dregs, consisting of 155 tunes by Angus Mackay, Piper to Her Majesty. Um it's great. This is the first tune. It's called Makai's Rant, um, and it's a fun little tune. I really dug it. Still could use some work, and I'm st- playing my old chanter again, and you can really hear some kind of tone issues with it, but uh, that is the recording I have. Uh, so hope you enjoy it, and this is already getting to be a long episode, so sorry about that. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.